All right, welcome to the uh, Friday live stream. This is a Q&A where I try to answer your questions, uh, helping you learn how to think biblically about everything. I'm Pastor Mike Winger in Southern California here, and I do not know all the answers, but those of you who've watched you know, many of my videos, you know this about me. The reason why I say it is because I want to create the right expectation as I dig into these, your questions and my answers, that the Bible, yes, perfect right answers. Your questions, yes, very important. Me, just one resource, one person trying to help bridge the gap between the questions and the perfect answers. So with that in mind, we will go to question number one, which is an anonymous question. And the and we're also taking all your questions in the live stream right now, as most of you know, we do every week. So 20 questions we'll take today. The first question is, you mentioned in a past session, the issue of becoming slaves to our desires instead of just doing the right things we don't feel like doing. Whether it's reading scripture, doing the housework, eating the right things, etc. I struggle with this daily and my whole house is a disaster. Please, can you offer some advice on how to target this issue? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a million things that can be said about this. And again, this is one of those things that's because, because it's so personal and so practical and so like you deal with this in a very deep way and it's and it's complicated because it's integrated into all your feelings about yourself and your life situation. So this is one of those things that, that deserves a longer answer, deserves a, an individual answer, but I'll share a few things. Um, first thing I'll suggest is figure out what's actually important um, to you. Figure out what's important to you. So consider this. Um, you, you might be one of those who's really good at organizing certain areas of your life and being faithful in certain areas and ways and then not others. If that's you, then ask yourself, why, why is there a disconnect? Now, on the other hand, you might be someone who's like, no, like my whole life is like this. Like, you know, whether it's work, whether it's relationships, whether it's organization and, and cleaning and, and eating, everything's a disaster. Then, then that to me is a red flag that you have. And I'm just being super straight with you is you have major, major character problems. If it's rather, um, I'm faithful in these areas, I'm unfaithful in these areas, then it's not just plain old, you have a character problem across your life, but rather you have to ask yourself, why is it? What is it that makes me do so good over here and then leave this off to the side and not be faithful in that and then start pursuing to understand that? Uh, let me talk about some attitude stuff that I think will help us. And these are things I tell myself too. So someone's going to think I'm being rude. Um, tr truth feels rude sometimes. It, it does. And if we make a rule that no one can tell me things that I think are rude, then we are actually making a rule that no one can correct me. And so <laughs> we want to make sure we don't do that. Um, but yeah, one thing is attitude. Um, it's possible that you're being unreasonable. That's always a possibility. I'll throw it out there. That is, um, maybe there's some things that other people expect of you, but in your life, they're just actually not that important. Um, so you said your, 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 your house is a disaster. I mean, maybe it's a total disaster or maybe it's just not as clean as you think it should be based on other people's opinions. So yeah, our, there's a there's a question here of how reasonable am I being? Am I setting expectations too high for perfection? And then... Uh, my failure of reaching perfection is total like despair. And that that's a paralyzing thing that doesn't help us in life. But if that's not the case, if this isn't too high of expectations, there's something, some other things biblically that I would want you to consider. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is the verse I always quote to myself for these same kinds of issues. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, right? This is normal. People feel this way. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. This is that verse that's always quoted out of context. People say, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, that's not true. <laughs> um, unfortunately, um, 
God will plenty give you more than you can handle, but he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. That means that you always have a choice when it comes to sin. You always have a choice. You don't have control over your whole life. You don't have control over your whole situation, your marriage, your kids, your job, your finances. But you do have control at that moment when you have a choice to sin or not sin. God himself is going to make sure you are not so tempted that you lose the ability to make a decision here. So be, with the temptation, God is going to what? Provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is, feel tempted without giving in to temptation. So what I'm saying here is when you look at, let's let's look at your question examples again. Um, reading scripture, doing housework, eating the right things. Those are three examples that were given. Okay, so um, you just have to acknowledge to yourself that when it comes to reading the Bible, like you have the ability, unless you have like a physical disability that makes it so you can't read, which is possible, except for that scenario. Yes, you can read. Like, this is not impossible. And you've got to tell yourself this. And I'll tell you why you've got to tell yourself this. Because the Bible diagnoses the problem of being lazy or or what, like, say, the ESV calls being a sluggard. The ESV translation there calls being being a sluggard. And, um, um, do, 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 do. oh, I put the wrong verse reference. Oh, I put the wrong book reference. Proverbs 26, verse 13. Look at what it says here and relate this to our, the way that we look at things like, eating the right things, doing housework, reading the Bible. The sluggard says, the sluggard here represents a person who's basically just being lazy. They're being, they're being lazy. They say, there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. Now, that, that's the whole proverb. There's no other details there. And so this is a proverb that makes people scratch their heads. What? This, the, okay, so a lazy person yells about a lion in the road. Um, I think that when we read it carefully and thoughtfully, we, we realize what's happening here is, the, the lazy person here is a picture of a person who's supposed to go do stuff, do, go to work, go take care of business, do things. And they imagine a disaster that keeps them from doing their job. And so they go, there's a, but there's a lion in the streets. It's too dangerous. I can't go out. I can't do anything. And so it's, a, it's just a, a, an extreme example of what we do to sometimes encourage our own laziness. Oh, man, I, I'm gonna, I would do that work, but it's too hard. It's too dangerous. The risk is too great. So I'm not going to do the thing I think I should do. We we imagine the task is much harder than it really is to justify us not doing it. That's a, a, a lazy habit that many of us, I, I will have too, right? I will have the same habit and I remind myself, just do the first part, Mike. Just do the first part. It's not that challenging. It's not that horrible. It's not that hard. Just get started on it. Just take one step down that path to avoid this natural tendency of mine because laziness is something I've struggled with my entire life. Don't tell my wife. She doesn't know. <laughs> she knows. All right. Uh, verse 14 then says, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. A door turning on its hinges is, it, there, there's two things here is the door is not going anywhere. The doors are fixed. They never leave. They just open and close. So the sluggard is stuck to resting. They're, what they're committed to above all else is taking it easy. I'm going to take it easy, man. I, I don't I don't really want to do that. So get out of bed is one of the big tips, right? Get up, get out of bed. I mean, this, of course, is annoying advice for somebody who's struggling with laziness because it's targeting exactly the things we don't like. Don't tell me I don't have good excuses. Don't, don't tell me I have to get up out of bed and go get to work even though I'm tired. But that's what we have to do. Verse 15 then says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wearies him. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. And this is, this is the issue of um, not finishing what we start, I think. That when, I, when I'm dealing and struggling with laziness, I 
put my hand in a, in a food dish, but I'm too tired to bring it back and, and finish it. This is the person who gets started on a job but never finishes it. So if you find yourself halfway through a job and you're feeling like, oh, I just, I've just lost all of my, my motivation to keep moving and getting this job done, whether that's reading the scripture, eating the right things, or cleaning the home, or whatever, fill in the blank. You need to remind yourself of this verse that says, oh, this, here I am halfway done and I'm too tired to finish the job and, and then reap the benefits of the work that I'm doing. So there's, a, uh, there's an analogy of this that, that's called the runner's high that I think might help us a little bit. So when people run, um, it, which, is, which is, of course, not fun for most of us, not fun, um, you, you, you get started exercising and you hit kind of this wall where you're running for a little while and all of a sudden it feels impossible. And it's like all the signals in your body are telling your brain, like, you're done, stop. There is no more juice for this. The task is done. And so a lot of people quit right there. But runners have found that if they push themselves past that, no matter how hard it is, that they reach a pace where they're able to go for not just a little bit longer, but a lot longer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna imagine that this has application to many areas of our lives, that we start doing a task and we hit a, an initial wall where it's a little difficult, where it's like the slugger buries his hand in his dish and he's too tired to bring it back to his mouth to eat, where we hit a little bit of a wall and it feels impossible. What I'm suggesting here is don't believe your internal sense of how hard a job is. Just go do it anyway. And that then you will push through and uh, you will you will have benefits. Now, there, there's other things you, um, you can add to this, such as motive. Like, why am I cleaning the house? Is it because it's like something I'm supposed to do? How about you do it as unto the Lord? as a way of bringing honor to Christ, as a way of blessing others, bring persons into the task instead of it just being a task. Like if I'm thinking about how much work I have to do to study to prepare the content I teach you guys, is I often feel like I'm hitting a wall with my studying. And But if I remind myself, but this is these are real people being blessed in real ways by the work I'm doing, then it motivates me in a different way to push through, right? Because now it's not just about the work, it's about the people. It's about the fruit that comes from the work. And so I think it's healthy for us to think of those things. Think of the Lord and how he rewards us ultimately for all that we do. So there's a lot of stuff I'm saying here that I hope some of it is valuable to you. Um, the sad thing is that we just we just have to avoid putting responsibility for our actions on something else and thinking that we're incapable. These are two different things. Um, I'm not doing it because of those problems. If those aren't real problems, I'm not doing it because of that. Okay, then ignore that. And I'm, I'm also, I'm just, I just can't, I try and I can't, I can't, I can't. You need to really disbelieve that because it's what the sluggard says. Oh, I can't. There's a lion in the streets. It's impossible for me to do it. Now it's totally natural as, as a human being, even as a Christian to be conflicted in your emotions and your desires for things. Because like Paul says, right, you have the spirit that desires against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. That's why you don't do what you want guys. And so, yes, that's all there. Um, and there's probably more that can be said about these things. Um, if, you, if you look at the tasks of your life, last thing I'll say before I go to the next question. If you look at all the tasks of your life and you feel overwhelmed, like you've been, you, you've been setting them aside for too long, they've gotten too big, it's all too overwhelming, there's too much of a mess because of all the stuff I've, I've, I've let slide, that that also can be paralyzing because you feel like, what's the point in continuing and pursuing? And, and, and it's like a drop in the bucket of this, this, this big thing. It's not making any difference. For that, I want to say um, Jesus's words in Matthew 6, verses 33 and 34. Um, I want to just read those to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about, or do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is such brilliant, brilliant wisdom for us that there's 
don't worry about all the tasks that have to be done over the next month, two months, six months, five years. Just do today. Just do today's task. And if you find that you're spending all your time on social media, spending all your time you're watching YouTube videos, but there's these tasks, today's tasks that are not being done, stop, even right now, stop watching this video, go take care of those tasks and do it unto the Lord, one step at a time. All right, we will go to question number two, and this one's coming in from, also anonymous. Um, some say because my ex-boyfriend and I French kissed, we have to get married. We broke up two years ago, and he didn't answer when I asked to talk. I want to be free to marry someone else, but I'm scared to sin against God. Help, how can I know I'm free? Um, you don't have to get married. <laughs> Um, you don't have to get married. If, if, even if you kissed, even if you had sex, it doesn't mean you have to marry that person. I mean, it's, it doesn't make it good. It's, it's, but there's, there's no, there's no like putting things back together, right? You, you just move forward from where you're at now. So yeah, if someone says, oh yeah, you guys French kissed, so you're supposed to get married. I, I think that this is, um, wrong. And I don't, I, the point is where in the Bible do we see this command? Where do we see this command? Um, there was a protection, a, a frequently misunderstood protection given in the Old Testament that if a man slept with a woman he was who was uh, unmarried, that he was required to, he forced himself on her. He's required to marry her and he can't ever divorce her or send her away. That That's a protection for her. Our culture is so different that we we just think she has to marry a rapist or something. And we're, we're misunderstanding the context legitimately. Um, but this was not guaranteed because the father who stands to represent her, he could refuse. So really, we're in a situation where the man who took advantage of a girl, he has no rights and the girl has all the rights. That's that's the law situation that was created there, frequently misunderstood. But um, but that's totally different than saying that if you're intimate with someone in some way, you're supposed to automatically get married. Um, we do have a situation where um, uh, one of David's sons, he took advantage of one of his sisters, his his half-sister, because David had you know many uh, wives and all that whole sadness that went on there and then she appeals just marry me because it because i don't want to be reproached okay now again we're in we're in our current culture looking at their culture not understanding what we're seeing she's actually looking for for that intentionally this isn't being forced upon her so I, what i'm saying is the two examples i can think of in scripture that someone might try to put on you they just don't apply at all okay there's no there's no statement in scripture that if you kiss somebody you have to marry them or if you even have sex that you have to get married it was wrong. It doesn't make it doesn't make it um, binding to marriage. So how can you know you're free? Well, there's no scripture that says that you're bound. So I don't understand. I, I talked to a brother once who was talking about how he had uh, slept with a girl who he was dating before he was married. He later got married, and in the nagging in the back of his mind, it was always bothering him that maybe, just maybe, he was supposed to marry that first girl that he was with, and that he blew it, and that somehow something was wrong with his current marriage. And for that, I'm going to say, no, 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 stop. You, we have to stop this because what I really, here's what I fear. I see this as undermining his marriage, not as having to do anything to do with holiness or sanctification or, or, or godliness in relationships. So nowhere in scripture do we see something about like your current marriage is invalid. You have to go back to a previous relationship or some obligation to get married because of some behavior you did in the past. And then now you're, you're like going on with your life and you feel like you're rubber banding back over to this person. We just don't see this as a requirement. 
I don't think in the Bible. So what I would recommend for anybody who wants to follow up is I have this long video I did on divorce and remarriage. Mods, maybe one of you could put it in there in the in the live chat. Uh, it's a three-hour teaching on divorce and remarriage. But if you look at the timestamps, one of the timestamps will, will be the question of like, you know, are second marriages real marriages? Do um, Does sex equal marriage? Things like that. And I get into all that kind of stuff in detail. So yeah, there's there's no scripture to support what people are telling you. There's just their social pressure. So you can graciously set it aside. Maybe they're well-intentioned, but they seem to be wrong. Ben V has a question. Why isn't the Greek Old Testament more authoritative? Its manuscripts are older and are referenced in the New Testament. Uh, for instance, Jesus mentions the Greek version of Isaiah 61 with blind in Luke 4.18. Um, let me just say that, okay, so Jesus talks in Luke 4, he's reading, he's in Nazareth and he's in the synagogue and he stands up and he says, he reads from Isaiah and he says, this scripture is fulfilled and it has the word blind there. And I take it, Ben, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I take it that the word blind in Isaiah 61 is in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, but not in the Hebrew we have. Um, so it turns out this is actually a lot more complicated than that. So what we don't have and what would make your case stronger we don't have in the New Testament is a continual use of just the Greek Septuagint, or that's what we call it, the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament. We don't have a continual use of that through the New Testament. It's actually more sporadic. And frequently authors will do their, I mean, they'll sometimes do their own translation of the Old Testament, or they'll have a, uh, they'll have a statement there that goes against the Greek. So I, for instance, uh, in my studies on um, substitutionary atonement, I was reading about this and it turns out that when the New Testament authors quote Isaiah 53, they're not using the Septuagint in that. Now that's interesting because they are writing in Greek, so you'd think they would want, but they actually will offer sometimes their own translation because the Septuagint in Isaiah 53, we we know has a sketchy history. And so it's interesting that the New Testament authors seem aware seem to be aware of this as well. So the, new, the, the Septuagint, we often see like, oh, they're quoting the Septuagint, but when you look at the words themselves, it's not necessarily a verbatim quote. Um, so all, that to say, the case for the Septuagint isn't that strong. I think we have a much softer thing going on here in the New Testament. We have the idea that translation is okay, right? Because we have the Hebrew they had access to. They could have just written the New Testament in Hebrew, but they wrote it in Greek, the common language of the people. And they frequently would quote from the Septuagint. They sometimes would do their own translation, slightly different than what we have there. And I think it allows us to say, hey, two things, translations are okay, but yet the original language is the ultimate authority. And that's why they will sometimes diverge from the Septuagint. So does that make sense? Uh, the original autographs have, they bear the authority, not, not just the autographs, but the original language, right? Because it might be a copy, but it's still the same language. The original wording that bears the ultimate authority and um, translations are good in so much as they reflect accurately those things and there can be some flexibility in how we translate things and i think that that's okay so that that's how i understand that ben i hope that you find that useful and helpful um there was another element i was thinking of i didn't i just it just escaped my mind right now um i'm just reading your question one more time oh it was the age of the manuscripts so the age of the manuscripts um, is is complicated as well, and I don't know all the answers on this, but I know this that what would okay if you just read the footnotes in your in your Bibles, you'll often think we have like these Masoretic, which is Hebrew Old Testament texts that are from like 900 A.D. approximately, right? 
That's a long time after Jesus. And then we have these Septuagint texts that predate the time of Jesus and that the New Testament authors are referring to. Well, I've already showed that's a little more complicated. But what we have found since then is things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which show Hebrew texts like the entire Isaiah scroll that look very much like our Masoretic text a thousand years later with almost no variation, no, no real significant variation, right? Um, and so what, what I'm suggesting here is the age of the manuscript is old, 900 AD, but it's been confirmed in many places by things like this, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that kind of increases our the trustworthiness of those things. It gets complicated, guys. And I think that from the studies I've done on these things, you can basically trust your English translation you're looking at. Okay, you don't need to get paranoid about it. But don't think the Septuagint should take some sort of higher role of authority. Um, Kate's online name, Katie's online name, sorry, Katie, says, people in my life push against save by faith alone. I'm doing this because she has quote marks in her question, right? I'll do this when you guys put quote marks. So um, people in my life push against save by faith alone, asking how can people like Hitler accept Jesus right before death and then go and sit in heaven next to Mother Teresa? How do I address that? Um, I think that uh, I've actually dealt with this a bit more extensively. I think it was last week I got a question similar to this one. So I'll, I'll just mention that that's there and you guys can check. If you guys don't know this, you can go to BibleThinker.org and we have two different search features. One of them is called the clip search feature. You could type a statement like Hitler and you'll see every time I've talked about Hitler in all of my 20 questions series or other videos and it will take you the exact moment in the video where I talked about that. I'm sure you're all Googling for Hitler now. Um, probably not, but there's other issues you can look for as well. It's all timestamped and searchable, BibleThinker.org. Just use the clip search feature, not the other one. Um, so what I'll say about this is that I think that people are, A, they're discounting how bad their own sin is or how even how much Mother Teresa needed a, a savior. B, they're discounting how, uh, how much Christ paid for our sins on the cross. And C, they're discounting the transforming effect of the cross in our lives. In other words, the entire gospel is being, is being ignored in this question. The entire gospel. Um, let, me, let me back that up a little bit. So how can you believe that Hitler is going to be, in, could be in heaven if he accepts Jesus right before he dies and he's sitting there along with somebody who you think is a good person? Um, a, they're not a good person, so we discount our sin. I know that Hitler's sin is horrifically bad, and it is horrifically, horrifically bad, and I know it deserves judgment, but I tend to look at my own sins like they don't, right? Like I'm basically a good person. Sat <laughs> Do you know that Hitler probably thought he was pretty much a good person too? Most people will proclaim their own goodness. Scripture says this actually, Proverbs. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? And so, yeah, we, we all tend to think we're a lot better than we are. If God was to just walk up and say, let me show you how bad your sin has been. Here are all the sins you've done in your heart and in your life. Here's the people it's impacted that you may not have remembered or even known about. Here's it all right in front of you at once. You would suddenly realize that there is no such person as Mother Teresa. Right? There is no Gandhi. Every one of us has, has failed and failed epically and failed miserably and we've fallen far short of God's glory. God's holiness is much more pure than we've ever realized and our sin, my sin, your sin, Mother Teresa's sin is much more dark and evil than we have realized. So that's the first thing that's discounted. The second thing that's discounted is how much Jesus paid for those sins. So I'm not suggesting here Hitler and Mother Teresa are, are the same. I'm just suggesting that they're both in a category called bad sinners. Okay, and um, the, the cross, 
pays for that. Like Jesus suffered and died. So if I look at Hitler and think you shouldn't be forgiven, can I instead ask a new question and look at the cross and ask this question? Does that earn the forgiveness of even someone like Hitler? That's a whole different question, isn't it? Does Jesus on the cross, does that earn the forgiveness of someone even as bad as Hitler? And I look at Jesus perfect and holy, standing to represent all of mankind in our place, suffering our punishment for the sins we've committed. And I go, yeah, Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy. Your death is worthy of redeeming all, including someone like Hitler. And then that's very good news because even though I'm real bad in my sin, Jesus has purchased my salvation. And the last thing, the third thing people forget is the transformation of the gospel. See, God doesn't just forgive you and translate, locate you to heaven when you die. He makes you a new person. When you accept Christ, this is, this is super important. So many people forget this in these discussions. When you give your life to Christ, you become born again, a new creation in Christ. Like 1 Corinthians says, like if, I think it's 2 Corinthians, any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. So you're a new creation. And this new creation involves a new character that's being worked into your life. Ephesians talks about this, that you have the old nature, right? As you still sin, but you have the new nature, the new person that's being made more like Christ all the time. This is a transforming thing that's ongoing in a person's life. Now, what if it happens right before you die? And you don't have a chance to play it out, to live it out. You will have eternity to live it out. And what's amazing is this. There is a hyper sanctification. I, I mean, this is a weird term to use, but there is a moment of radical sanctification that happens uh, after I die. And that is, I see God. I am rid of my flesh and all the sinful things. I am, I am just driven by the new person that Christ is making in me. So this means that the persons that you see in heaven who were wicked on earth will not be the same people as far as their character is concerned. They'll still be the same soul, but not the same kind of person. It would be a redeemed person. Now, how hard do our hearts have to be to say, God, I want forgiveness and I want transformation, but I don't want it for those people because I'm going to ignore how much Jesus paid on the cross. I'm going to ignore how bad my sin actually is. And I'm going to ignore the fruit of real transformation that comes from faith in Christ. So like I rejoice that Hitler, I'm pretty sure he didn't, but he could have come to Christ even on his deathbed and it would have resulted in true transformation and eternal change. And I would, I would prefer to see him in heaven covered by the grace of Christ than, and totally transformed and repentant than in hell. And I want the same grace and kindness on all of us and myself and you as well. And I, I think that um, people ignore the gospel when they say things like that. Number five, number five, this is from Green is Great. Can you be saved but not elect? Confused by Mark thirteen twenty. Will the elect be taken by the rapture or will they suffer the tribulation? All right, let's get into this. Mark thirteen twenty. I want to say, guys, I, I have um, taught through Mark verse by verse the entire book of Mark. And when I got to Mark 13, I stopped and I did some stuff on end times that you might want to you might want to spend some time on. Uh, you can check out the Mark series playlist on my YouTube channel or you can go to BibleThinker.org and there's a whole there's a whole like series button for all the videos in Mark. And you can find the one where I talk about this passage in great detail. So Mark 13, 20 says, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. Uh, so we, we're reading here about there's this, there's this time of, of suffering and tribulation upon the earth and it will be cut short. It, it's limited. It's not going to go on forever. And the reason why it's limited is because of the elect, because God has people who he's saving. He's not just judging the world. He's also saving people out of it. So there's like a limit to how much he'll do. And your question, I'll read it again. Now that we've read through the uh, the passage, 
Um, can you be saved but not elect? Confused by Mark 13, 20. Um, so the, the two interpretations of elect that spring to my mind as I'm reading this right now with you is one that elect is referring to people who are who are saved and the other is that elect refers to like groups of people like say the nation of Israel um, oh well God has a plan to do something amazing in the nation of Israel so he doesn't want to totally destroy them now if the first one is accurate if the first interpretation holds which is what I would lean towards for the sake of the elect whom he chose that this is these are the ones that are saved then I also think every elect is saved. That's my impression. You probably have some pushback on that. Forgive me, I don't see it in your question there, so I won't try to comment. Uh, the other interpretation is, hey, no, this is Israel's God's elect. We read about Israel being God's elect in the Old Testament. We're, we're continuing that here, and that's what the word elect means. I don't think you can hold that true national Israel. I don't think you can hold that consistently as you read through the New Testament, and so I don't lean that way. If that's the case, well, you know, you could... You could have people in the nation of Israel that aren't necessarily saved. So yeah, um, yeah. So th that to add, I guess a little bit to that, the admonition here, after being told that there's going to be these great and difficult times ahead, is to to Christians, people who are trusting in Christ. Right? He's like, hey, there's there's those who are elect, which I would take to be Christians, and then the admonition is, and then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there is. There he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. And so he warns them against false Christs. Uh, this this could only be a warning, I think, for people who are trusting in Jesus, right? For who else would listen to Jesus's words? So yeah, I'm, I'm going to say elect there. Now, can you be elect and not saved or saved and not elect? I, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, however, I want to just leave one door open. Every passage in the Bible doesn't have to use the word elect the same way. I think this passage seems to be using it to refer to Christians. There's some passages that might be referring to, say, the nation of Israel, in the especially the Old Testament. So I don't think that we need to think God can only use the word elect with one definition throughout the entire Bible. That's too strict of a thing. And this is a mistake I see all the time for those of us who care about theology. In theology, we define terms like, say, the word justification or elect. And then what we do is we sometimes read as though the Bible's always using those terms with those definitions, and it can make us um, confused as we approach different passages. Lauren has a question. Hi, Mike. Thoughts on self-forgiveness. Do you think it's biblical? Um, well, yes and no. Okay, so Lauren, I'm going to say my, my understanding of this is no, self-forgiveness is not biblical in that I don't ever see anywhere in the Bible that talks about you forgiving yourself. Um, I think it's weird and almost, um, unintentionally arrogant that you have to forgive yourself. It's like, it seems pretty prideful to think that you even get like the Bible speaks of forgiveness as though it, it carries a sense of authority with it, right? This is why when Jesus forgives, and I'm going to balance this out in a minute for those who are upset with me already, <laughs> just give me a minute. Okay. Let me, let me give my full answer. But the, um, the Bible speaks about forgiveness as though it requires a sense of authority. And so it never talks about you forgiving yourself, to my knowledge, ever, anywhere in the entire Bible. It does talk about other people forgiving you. And that is the one you've sinned against. And so when Jesus shows up and he, there, you know, there's the story of the paralytic and he's lowered through the roof by his friends. And Jesus looks at this paralytic, he's paralyzed, and, and he wants to be healed. And Jesus says, you know, be of good cheer, you're, you're, son, you're forgiven for your sins. And then they complain, Jesus, only God can forgive. Notice there, he doesn't actually say that they're wrong. That only God can forgive. But that's that's the the um, 
the backdrop of the New Testament writing is this, this culture that recognizes forgiveness. To forgive someone, you have to have the authority to forgive. And for that, you have to be the one that they sinned against. Jesus then does this to affirm that he has the power to forgive sins. But the problem with saying, I'm going to forgive myself, is that it puts me in a place of authority. Like, I'm the one judging myself. I'm the one determining my fate. I'm the one deciding that I'm going to be forgiven. And I think that all of that is confused and wrong, to be honest. On the other side, there is a sense in which I think I would rather use than use the term forgive myself. I'd rather use the term um, acknowledge my forgiveness, be free from condemnation, be able to, to, to realize I'm no longer condemned under my sins, but to recognize it doesn't come from me. I didn't forgive myself to get that. I'm just acknowledging it. So this is why I don't use the term forgive myself. I, I think instead, biblically, we have statements like Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Th that's about the authority coming from, from outside you. Jesus, he forgives you. Now you're not condemned. Guys, you need to be under no condemnation as a Christian. Right? In Hebrews 4, it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in times of need. I just have to recognize I'm going to this throne of grace that is Jesus' sacrifice for me. And I receive forgiveness from him. And my act of faith is to trust in Jesus' forgiveness, not to forgive myself. The whole concept of forgiving myself seems like it's built on putting me in a place of authority in the place of God. So that's why I totally reject the idea, <clears throat> forgive myself. But at the same time, I really want to affirm we have a deep need for psychological awareness that we're forgiven or else we're not going to be okay in life. It just doesn't come from you. That's all I'm saying. It comes from God. Now, this is so much better than it coming from you. Because if forgiveness comes from you, then it's as flimsy as your own ability to believe in your own decision to forgive yourself. But if forgiveness comes from Christ, then it is ironclad and it is secure no matter how you feel today or tomorrow. And if you're telling yourself, but I just don't feel forgiven, then you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, well, sometimes you feel stupid things. I'm going to run to the throne of grace boldly to find mercy and grace to help in my time of need. I'm going to know that, like 1 John says, even if my heart still condemns me, God is greater than my heart and he knows all things. And he's the judge of me, not me. So I don't believe my own unforgiveness, my own lack of awareness of my forgiveness. That would be my <clears throat> more thoughtful explanation of all that. <coughs> Excuse me. Anonymous question. Um, why do people say there's no biblical basis against contraception when God kills Onan for it? Oh, this, I'm really glad this question came up. I don't think I've ever receives this question. All right, we're going to we're going to look at this passage and then I'll read the question again because we're going to need that context. So there's a woman who is um <clears throat> uh she gets married to a brother and then that brother dies and she has no kids yet. Now there was something called levirate marriage in the Old Testament, not levite. It's not about levites or priests or anything. Levirate meaning like that it's it's you keep it within the brothers within the family. So if a woman gets married um in in Israel under the law this is not something that currently has to happen, but it's under the law of the Old Testament. And the man dies. Here's a problem. This son, he has an allotted land, an inheritance in the land of Israel that now will be someone else is going to take. It will not go with their family name. And so his wife would marry, because the promised land is pretty important for Israel, would marry the, the, one of his brothers, not necessarily if he was already married, he could pass on this. And we see this happen like in the book of Ruth. One of the people passes on on marrying uh, Ruth, and 
Um, that's a whole other thing in the shoe situation, whole interesting story. But <clears throat> then she would marry the brother and the firstborn child would be raised in the name of the original father, which is a way of honoring him and carrying on that family name. Then that land would go to that child in the name of that man. And so that the family name could be carried on. Okay. And here's a story where this happens with, with Tamar, I believe it is. And she gets married and the brother doesn't want her to have a kid because he, he wants Maybe he wants the land for himself. He does not want to raise up a kid to the name of his brother. He's dishonoring his brother. So in verse 8 of Genesis 38, Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to perform your go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. That's that levy rate marriage thing. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in, this, this is a euphemism for being intimate together, right? Whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would you know, parent alert, you can see on the screen, you, you might want to mute the video, pause it for a second. Um, the Bible is not written for children <laughs> in most places, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. So Onan's doing this. He's, this is, you could call this birth control, right? I mean, he is controlling pregnancy. Ultimately, he's interesting that if you're, if you're controlling birth, that's actually technically immoral, but he's trying to avoid pregnancy. And verse 10 says, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death. And so lots of sons are dying here because of their wickedness. Um, God really cares about preserving the names and the land and all this sort of thing. It's connected to Jesus ultimately. So here's the question. Why do people say there's no biblical basis against contraception when God kills Onan for it? And the punishment for that is not death according to Deuteronomy 25, verses 7 through 10. Okay, so let's now add another verse. Deuteronomy 25, verse 7 through 10. Is this saying that birth control in the sense of contraception, okay, not not uh, preventing a, a, new, a living human being, an embryo, from, say, um, attaching to the, the mother or something like that, but rather just preventing the conception itself. Is that bad um, and immoral? And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And so she takes his sandal and spits in his face. This is a public shaming thing. It's shameful that he's not doing this. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> Maybe that flowed better in Hebrew. <laughs> you are the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. But, um, but yeah, so let me just say this uh, to my anonymous questioner number seven. So the punishment is actually not death penalty in Deuteronomy 20, uh, 25, verses 7 through 10. So the punishment here was just shaming. It was a, a sense of shaming. And it's interesting how this plays out in Ruth. In Ruth, the man already has, a, he's already married. And so they don't do this spitting in the face thing. They pull the sandal off like ceremonially, but there's no shame associated with it because it's considered, oh, this is a different situation. This isn't like, say, Onan. Finally, we get to the question. Onan spilling his seed on the ground to avoid her getting pregnant is that a biblical commentary on all forms of birth control or all forms of excuse me contraception you know control 
And I, I think the answer is no, because once you see the full context, you realize there's so much more going on here, right? He doesn't want to raise up a child to his brother's name. It's not just not wanting to have a child, period, for some reason. And so it, it seems there's too much going on here to just translate this broadly into all sort of contraception discussions. It just seems like there's too much going on there. So I, I would say... No, uh, that there's no biblical basis in that sense. There's none against it. I think the best we can do on arguing this is we can point out the positivity of having children, that children are a blessing and a good thing and they're valuable and wonderful. We can point to commands to be fruitful and multiply, but then we can people can counter this. I'm going to have a, a long debate with you in like 30 seconds here. <laughs> I just crammed it. People can counter this with, well, Jesus lauded singleness and so did Paul. So they obviously didn't think the obligation to have children was something that fell on each person as a personal obligation, even though it's a generally good thing and something that humanity is supposed to do as a whole. Okay. So what about families who say they've, they've had three kids and they're, they're thinking for whatever reason, they're going to stop having kids. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to make a judgment call on them. I'm going to leave that between them and the Lord. That's my short answer. All right, number eight. Um, and we've got all 20 questions for you guys. All 20 are in, and we'll work through them one at a time now. So Caden Headland says, Pastor Mike, what do you think of parachurch organizations like Crew? They don't seem biblical to me because they assume the duties of a local church. I would love uh, to know what you think. Thanks. Caden, uh, my, my general thought is that I don't want to limit the work of the ministry because of things like that. Um, I, I, I don't know how we really evaluate the distinction between church and parachurch. Like I, in one sense, I use the term church and parachurch to mean church as in the local gathering of believers who meet regularly. I call that church and parachurch. I call everything that happens outside of that regular meeting. But even that line is sometimes gets a little blurry. Um, what I do see is that at least in principle, a group like Crew has at least the possibility of doing incredible work of ministry in really important places. Um, Crew is it does on-campus ministries where they have groups that gather together. They help to disciple people, do evangelism, and then help people to deal with some of the stuff, the garbage that they hear from college professors on campus and the environment that they're in. This is incredibly secular and ungodly. And so I'm like, how do I say go away because you're hurting the church? I'm like, I don't think so. I mean, I, I just don't see it at all. Um, you know, I have a ministry here where I teach online. And some of you, you don't go to church, but you listen to my online ministry and you're like, well, that's my church. Now, you also know that I don't approve of that. <laughs> you do it anyway. But would you, Caden, would you think that because some people will use my ministry as a way of saying, I don't need the local fellowship? Should that mean that my ministry shut down? I think that that's obviously wrong. So I guess the problem is when people use these parachurch things to replace involvement in a local fellowship. That's the problem. That's what I want to deal with. I don't want to like come against parachurch ministries in general because I, I think they do amazing work. And we're called to go into all the world and make disciples. And so there's the idea is that the church has tons of activity in the world. And this is a good and positive thing. We just don't want to, like Hebrews says, don't neglect the gathering together of yourselves as is the manner of some. So um, that's Hebrews 13. You guys can check it out. Yeah, there's my my short answer on that. Now, as far as crew and do they have specific practices that maybe aren't healthy? And all, I don't even, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not commenting on that because I, I have no clue. Number nine, Miguel Gonzalez says, how can someone know if they're truly feeling convicted about something? 
I'm trying to get right with God and I sometimes feel everything I do is damning. Don't want to sugarcoat, but be realistic. Okay. Um, <clears throat> um, I'm trying to get right with God and sometimes I feel everything I do is damning. So let me, let me give you an illustration um, that I find helpful. So our conscience is like a compass and think of North as being morality. Like, you know, moral behavior is where the conscience is pointing north. And so you could, you could, you know, you look at your life and you feel like, oh, I'm not really headed north in this area of my life. So you feel like everything you do is damning or is condemning or is wrong. Um, but compasses, none of them actually point to true north. They're all off. Right? So magnetic north and true north are two different things. Okay, so the actual axis and the north pole, the closer you get, in fact, the more you realize how off your compass is because the more your, nor your north is going to point a little wrong. And this is how I feel in by way of illustration how many of us are with morals. The closer we get to holiness, the more we realize that some of our own intuitions are just a little bit off. Um, but also, if you believe your compass you might be believing an instrument that's a little damaged. And if you're feeling damned by everything you do, there's a chance, Miguel, there's a chance that your compass itself is more than a little off of north. It's perhaps a lot off. I would add another problem here, which is that um, you feel everything you do is damning. Now, that raises the stakes. Now, I'm just going to assume that you wrote that word because that was the perfect word to describe how you felt. If you as a Christian think that every sin you commit, even when you fail, is damning, I am damned. That is that is definitely uh, what this is. Is this is an overreaction to sin in the life of a believer, whereas the Christian can what come boldly to that throne of grace. You don't feel like you can't. You feel like you're damned. Or perhaps you sin and then you feel like you can't pray for a day or two or three. I mean, that was me when, for the first several years of my walk with Christ. I felt like oh, I, I've, I've blown it. At least that I'm. A, I probably sinned. I sinned way more than I was aware of. Right, but. But when I was aware of it, I'd be like, oh, I really blew it. I, I feel like I can't pray. I don't really feel like comfortable in church. I don't feel like I, I should sing out loud like that's not right for me to do because I feel bad. This was me misunderstanding the, the continual grace of Christ upon my life, that it's continual, that it's ongoing, that it's current, that it's now. And so I think that that could be a problem as well. So Miguel, what I'm going to recommend is... Um, uh, um, Try to get your place yourself to a place of stability where you understand that even if you blew it five seconds ago, you were not apart from Christ. That you can still pray. And also to get that compass straightened out so that if there's areas where you're maybe making too big of a deal about something that's not really a big deal, that that won't cloud your judgment because then it will keep you from fighting real sin. Um, so let me give you an example of this. Um, um, I'm trying to think of where the scripture is. Just a moment. This is an example that might parallel to what you're talking about here. Um, uh, Paul talks about it in, oh, the first Timothy four. There we go. There we go. Okay. Aha. Okay. This is talking about false teachers and I'm not suggesting that you're that or something like, I'm just think there's a lesson we can learn in it. So the spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared as with a hot iron. So their compass is not pointing North. They don't, they don't have a direction anymore. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Notice the doctrines these people are focused on, forbidding to marry, 
so they seem to think they may be teaching that physical relations are inherently bad um forbidding to marry um instead of thinking that it's glorious marriage is beautiful sex is inherently good and it's out of its proper context it's a problem but it's actually a wonderful and good and proper thing um and they're abstaining from foods focusing on food why why, why do they focus on food the the issue here is that they're focused on these things because they're not focused on the actual things God cares about. They're not focused on denying the flesh. They're not focused on giving giving no uh, provision to to actual sin. And so sometimes, if you feel everything you're doing is damning, you might actually be focusing on tiny little things that aren't that important and missing out on some of the bigger issues that are actually more important. It's it's a it's a thing any of us can fall into. I've fallen into it. So we want to focus on the weightier matters that the law Jesus said, right? Loving God, loving others. I hope that helps, buddy. Um, C.A. Harris says, thank you, Mike, for answering our questions. Jesus said that no one has seen the Father except himself. Do you think when we get to heaven that we will be able to see the Father as well as Jesus? Um, yes. Uh, let me take you to a scripture. Here we go. Um, <clears throat> first John three, two beloved, we are God's children now. And what we, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I think that there is this, um, this is what some of the old, old writers, old, I mean like hundreds of years ago, we, we call like the beatific vision. And <laughs> the idea is that we, 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 we see God, you know, fully as fully as we're capable of doing in a way that if we saw him now, because we're still in our flesh, we still have that carna carnality in us. We wouldn't be able to survive. We wouldn't be able to get through it. Um, but we will be able to see him and the fullness of his goodness and glory. Revelation talks about this as well. It talks about how God will be the light. It says there's no need of sun in the new city because God himself will be the light. So you will not only see him, you will see things by him. The closeness of our relationship with God is heaven. Like is the chief, most important part of heaven is our intimate connection and relationship with God. So I don't think there'll be this kind of separation that we, that we read about elsewhere. It's a glorious and wonderful thing. It's something that um, nobody ever gets right in, in, in movies and TV when they talk about heaven. It's interesting how distant God is even in heaven in most of these movies. Or he's just like a, a wise, smarmy old person that you talk to. Um, you, can't, you can't put it in a film. The closeness we will have with God, the intimacy that we'll have with God. He will be with us we will, and, and will be our God. He will be our light. We will see him as he, as he is. Oh, yeah. It's going to be good. Number 11, Alana uh, Quinones. Quinones. I'm sorry, Alana. I, I, I should know how to pronounce that name. I know Quinones. Um, I am curious about the theory that Moses wrote in Egyptian hieroglyphics, not Hebrew. Arguing for an oral tradition, not a written text. I've never heard this before. I'm baffled. Thanks. Um, I've never heard it before either, Alana. So I'm a little baffled myself. Um, Moses wrote in Egyptian hieroglyphics, not Hebrew. Yeah, I mean... Here's what here's what we need when we see, when we hear this kind of thing. Here's what I recommend. You guys will always you're never going to stop hearing random weird theories, especially on the internet about Jesus, God, Christianity, the Bible. Um, 
And what we often hear is we'll hear a theory and they throw out a couple little random details. Well, you know, there's there are Egyptian loan words in the Old Testament. Okay, well, that's true, right? Um, Moses wrote, you know, in in uh, in Egypt, they would have written in Egyptian, right? And, he's, and he was trained in Egypt. And they'll, they'll say, if, I'm just, I'm literally just making this up on the spot. And if you find that convincing, you're a gullible person. <laughs> um, what we need to do is we need to push for more details and push for a stronger case and a more thorough case. Ask a person who makes a statement like this. Here's a question you can ask them. What pushback have you received to that theory? Are there any challenges to that theory that you're aware of? And you start gathering data. And this is what I would do is I'd be like, well, what kind of pushback is there to this sort of thing? Are there any scholars that have written on the topic? Are there Christians who have addressed this that I can read? So yeah, Alana, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. I would chalk it up to one of many things that you will spend hours studying to find out that it's probably worthless. Um, so I would put it on the person who told you to try to defend it a little better before you go on a studying spree. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. We'll go to the next question. So number 12 is uh, Jordan Amara, Jordan Arama, who says, Hi, Mike. Is there a scripture that supports being a continuationist? I'm a soft charismatic, but personal experience is not convincing to a cessationist claiming I'm being unbiblical, even heretical. I think that the the short answer to your question is that the um, the scripture that supports being a continuationist, which which I am, to to some degree, um, and you might call me I, maybe soft charismatic is the right term. I, I kind of like that term, Jordan. I might borrow that from you. Um, but the the basic logic for me goes like this: um, the New Testament church was given gifts. These give these gifts were given um, as a normal part of the functioning of the church. And there's no teaching in scripture that says that they've ceased and there isn't any. And so more I'm, I'm saying like, you can't really argue against this, right? The Holy Spirit gives gifts. Romans 12. I mean, let's look at it a little bit. Um, for a scripture here to share with you guys. So here's Paul just writing to general Christians. He's not writing to special super Christians. He's not writing, it's just writing to general Christians. We would say most of what Romans is, has written there applies to us today because it's written to New Testament believers to expound to them the gospel and what it is to be in Christ. Um, having gifts, verse six, speaking of us, we're all, we're all members of the body of Christ. And part of being members is that we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And then he says, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, that we, you, you prophesy in proportion to your faith. If service in our serving. Now serving continues, right? The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. All of these things on this list are things that the, the cessationist would say continue. Um, but this one they would say stops. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a distinction with Paul. So what I'm going to say is, I just want to highlight the if. Right, the, the the continuationist would tend to think prophecy is something that should be happening on a regular basis in your local church. It's almost like an expectation and a requirement and a test of a healthy church. Do we see regular prophecy happening? Is that really going on on a regular basis? Is that help? Then it's, if not, then it's not really healthy. No, I, I just think if, if, hey, if if God, God could spend two hundred years in a local area where He doesn't really do many of the gifts of the Spirit in the in the sense of prophecy or tongues. I'm fine with that. God can do whatever he wants for whatever reasons he wants. I don't have requirements. But I can't be closed off to it because scripture seems to be quite open to it. So you can look at various other places in scripture that talk about the gifts of the spirit being for New Testament Christians, New Covenant believers, and nothing that says it's ceased. 
but there is a trend that I think seems consistent, which is that the height of the work of the of the gifts of the Spirit tended to follow the gospel going into new locations. When the gospel goes out in a new place, there tends to be a, a, an, an emphasis of the work of the Spirit in the gifts, in the miraculous and sign, sign and wonder type gifts. And then after a season, it seems like it happens less there. And so that's interesting. It also tends to follow the apostles themselves and not just everybody individually. And so I'm aware of those things, which tells me something. God can give these gifts unevenly, depending on his purposes and goals. And when we look pragmatically in the world, the places where we see the gifts most legitimately seeming to be happening on a regular basis are places where the gospel is going out into new territory. So that seems consistent. So sometimes I, I want to call myself a lessationist, <laughs> but maybe that's putting too much, too, too fine of a point on it. All right, number 13. This is Elephant Shrew who says, in the Old Testament, God worked with the Israelites. Could a Gentile become a Jew in the Old Testament and be saved? Yes and no. Um, so God works with the Israelites primarily, like that's his salvation work. Now in the Old Testament, he doesn't work only through the Israelites. So an example of this is Naaman the Syrian. So we read about Naaman the Syrian who goes to Elijah and he, um, or was it Elisha? Elijah or Elisha? I think it was Elisha. I think it was Elisha with the SH. Anyway, you guys, you guys can fact check me. You can tell everybody in the live chat how right or wrong I am. Um, so Naaman goes to Elisha and he wants to be healed. Now he's a Syrian. He is the general of, <clears throat> of the military for the Syrians. And he comes and he has leprosy and he can't get healing anywhere, but he hears that, you know, Elisha, I think it's Elisha. Is it Elisha? Somebody tell me. Anyway, he goes to Elisha. He's like, hey man, I, I, I want, I want a healing. Can you give me this healing? And um, Elisha's like, meh. Short version of the story, meh. Yeah, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Doesn't doesn't even talk to him. Sends a messenger back and forth, and naming the Syrians offended. We got better rivers. Have you guys ever seen the Jordan? It's not the cleanest river, okay? <laughs> because we got better rivers back in Syria. I could dip myself in, and his servants like, hey man, if he told you to climb a mountain, you would have done it. Like, why don't you just go dip in the river? And just be humble about it. So, Naaman goes and he dips in the river seven times, and his his leprosy falls away. He's healed. Naaman becomes convinced that the God of Israel is the true God. Naaman is a Syrian. Naaman is a Gentile. Naaman is not a Jew. He then comes up. Yeah, it's Elisha. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Second Kings 5. Naaman then goes back to Elisha and he's like, hey, um, I, I'm conflicted. Now his, his eyes have been opened. His worldview has changed. The God of Israel is the true God. And that means that these other gods are false. But I'm the general and part of my job, this is an interesting job he has, is to to help the king enter the chamber to worship, I think it's Dagon. And so he would help the king who seems like he was old and a little infirm. He would assist him in kneeling down and getting back up while worshiping Dagon. And Naaman's like, I'm not going to worship Dagon, but part of my job is to assist him physically while he's doing it. Is that okay? And I also want to take some earth from, from Israel with me so he can have an altar where he worships the God of Israel. Naaman wants to worship the God of Israel and he wants to do it in a way that's not offensive to God. He wants to even take the earth with him. And Elisha just tells him, go in peace. This is, this is a passive way of saying, yes, that's okay. Naaman gets saved in the Old Testament is what I'm saying, but he never becomes Jewish, but he does, for, he does reject his pagan gods and worship the God of Israel. Naaman has simply a faith response and he's saved, right? Just like with Jesus, you just believe, you just trust in him. And you're saved. That being said, a person could become Jewish. They could proselytize and become Jewish and observe the feasts and all that, but they didn't have to in order to be forgiven by God. 
what they had to do was turn from their pagan gods and trust in the true God. And uh, then they could be forgiven. So on top of that, they may have also converted. Maybe they live in the land of Israel and they become Jewish. Maybe they were a servant in a house and they ended up worshiping and trusting in God. There's my answer on that. All right, number 14, uh, JHDE says, would you recommend marrying someone of a different religion, say Seventh-day Adventist, for example? Um, well, Seventh-day Adventist, from what I understand, which which is this much about it, because not that much I get about it, uh, is that there's a lot of variety in it. So there's some Seventh-day Adventists who I would say, yeah, go marry them, and other ones who I'd be like, no, nah, dude, that's messed up. <laughs> like that's, that's compromising some serious Christian doctrines that are essential. So I guess the better, the better way to put this, the way I put it back to you is, would I recommend marrying somebody who compromises things like the nature of Christ, um, belief in the word of God, um, or, or how we can be saved? They have a different gospel fundamentally. If, if those things are off, then I'm not going to marry that person. Um, so I hope that gives you the example. Seventh-day Adventists, are too, there's too much variety in there to answer that question with a blanket yes or no. Number 15, Gabriel Imot. Oh, oh, oh let me... Just so you guys know, I, I mean, it could sound like I am just um, giving my own judgment on things. I'm, what I'm doing is I'm trying to give a judgment based upon the teaching of Scripture. So um, in 1 Corinthians 7, I'm going to find the verse here. In 1 Corinthians 7, we, we, we get this um, about who one can marry. Okay. Maybe, maybe if I search it this way, um, the exact verse is what I'm looking for here. 7.39, maybe? Okay, I got it. Um, and I'll put it on your screen. Okay, a wife is bound by law uh, as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So, um, the judgment of the Apostle Paul, which I believe is the inspired instruction we're given from the Holy Spirit through 1 Corinthians 7, is anyone you wish, only in the Lord. Now, for a little bit of backdrop, cultural backdrop, there were Jewish teachings that would, that would talk about like a, a separation or a divorce that would then say the person's free to marry anyone they want as long as they're Jewish. And it would actually say this on the certificate, like anyone you want as long as it's a Jew. Um, here, Paul says, anyone you want, only in the Lord, meaning that they're genuinely in Christ. So genuine Christians only, which doesn't say what denomination are they part of. It's just like genuine believers, as long as they aren't off on uh, central doctrines of Christianity, then they're on the table as at least a potential spouse. And that would apply to anybody who's getting married, I think. Um, all right, number 15. Gabriel Imot says... How could the devil fall being perfect, moral excellence? Knowing the full comprehension of God, how could he even think evil thoughts? Um, Gabriel, I don't, I mean, this is going to frustrate somebody. I, I just, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> um, how could he fall being perfect? I mean, he was, in what sense was he perfect? Was was he perfect in the sense that he had inherent moral goodness like God? Well, like, no, nobody, nobody has that except God. And even in eternity, when we have it, we have it from God. And so, we, we are joined to him. Our natures become connected to him in a sense, right? And so we have it from him. The angels are different. They're different than humans. They're just very different than humans. 
So all I have is what I think is commentary about Satan in the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, these are the two passages um, that may give insight into if I'm interpreting it right. Now it's symbolic and metaphorical here and I think that it's referencing ultimately it moves up to talking about Satan at some point in these passages. And it talks about his his, um, ambitions. He liked the idea of being bigger and better. You know, I will be, I will be his God. I will be his God. The same thing he tries to tempt Eve with in the garden. He first tempted himself with, he desired and he wanted. How could that be? How could he have a desire that's conflicting with what God wants when he was made perfect? Well, in what sense are we saying he was made perfect? I guess that's where I would provide the pushback. It seems that angels were made. We're not told that they were made. um, Every desire they have is good, that that's how they were crafted or something. Rather, we are, we are told that they are God's holy ones, but that isn't holy ones doesn't necessarily mean holy in all their ways, right? It, this is also about being set apart. Um, so we are told this in scripture that angels seem to have a choice about whether they will continue to serve God or whether they will rebel, that they are seem to seem to be presented with a choice. So it seems as though all intelligent creatures, humans and angels are given a choice in this first world, so to speak, so that when God remakes all things, Everyone lives according to their choice. And I think that that creates a finally perfect world where real love will exist and consist because everyone has chosen whether they want to be part of it or not. Number 17, Jacob Webb says, hello, hope all is well. Just a quick question. How do you interpret the lying spirit in 1 Kings 22? Thanks. Hope you have a great day. Um, I've gone back and forth on that one and we will just read it together and I'll offer a couple potentially unhelpful thoughts. (laughs) Okay. Um, I don't know how much of the chapter is relevant to this story. Oh man, it's, it's a 53 verse chapter and to keep things a little bit short, it helps me if you guys put the verses in there. I mean, just for my own sake of not always remembering those things. And I don't want to, like I'm stalling the stream right now as I'm scanning a chapter while I talk and read at the same time. It's not the most useful thing in the world. Um, I guess I can just look up lying spirit and consider where it is in the passage. Let's back up a little bit. Well, I'd like to give you guys more of the background, but I'll just read some of this passage here. Um, The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Then Micaiah said, Micaiah said, um, therefore hear the word of the Lord. Okay. Before we read this, um, Micaiah comes to the king of Israel and he's like, gives him bad news. Now this, the the backstory is that he's like, Hey, um, you know, we, we should consult a prophet. The things that are going on in Israel right now, we should ask a prophet. And you know, the king's like, well, Micaiah is there, but he always gives me bad news. The king's not a good guy. And so Micaiah, being a genuine messenger of the Lord, continually gives him bad news. So the king kind of hates him. Micaiah gives him him a story and he's like, yeah, see, I knew it was going to be bad news. Verse 19. I'm trying to summarize here. Um, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. The Lord said, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. So one spirit comes up and he's like, I'll persuade him. Then the Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, 
I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Now, every king had prophets back then. Whether they were good, bad, uh, honest, truthful, called by God, or just appointed by man, they all had prophets. Um, it seems as though there was a minority of good prophets amongst the many that the kings often had. So I'm going to go and I'm going to be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. And the Lord has declared disaster against you. So um, then they argue. And one of them smacks Micaiah. And he's like, how? Which way did God's spirit go when he went from you to come to me? And they have like a little like cat fight about it all. And the question that I think st stands out to us nowadays is often the question of, wait, does God endorse, is God endorsing lying in this passage and deception and that sort of thing? Um, let me offer a couple different possible interpretations. Like one view would be, and, and I do this often when I don't know for sure the right view. It's not like I'm trying to waffle. I just, I don't know everything. So um, the one view is that God is actually using like holy messengers like an angelic good messenger here a spirit to go and deliver a message that is false that he's going to deceive these these prophets who are the king's prophets now contextually they're false prophets they're bad prophets they're prophets who already don't listen to god and they make up whatever they want and tell it to the king or they get it from somewhere else so then the dilemma is how how would god tell like one of his angels effectively or his spirits to give a deceptive message that seems wrong Another interpret now a response to that could be that God uh, deceiving his enemies as punishment for their sins is just punishment. It's just punishment. So um, I'm trying to think of an example of this. Um, I mean, we, we do this in war. You know, in war, like in in D-Day. I don't know if you guys were this back in back in the day, <laughs> World War II, D-Day. They they took a bunch of parachutes and dropped them onto a beach they were not attacking. And the parachutes were dropped with like fake got fake people like dummies or something on them. And they were dropped to, in order to get the Germans to go, oh, send everybody to that beach. Send everybody over there to fight. Then they actually attacked a different beach. And so this is, this is deliberately deceiving an enemy as part of a, a ploy. Um, and then you have to wrestle with whether you think that's okay. Can, can God mislead the enemy? Well, he kind of misled Satan. With the, with, the, with the death of Jesus because Satan thought this was a great victory and it ended up being his greatest defeat. And so to some extent, I'm comfortable with, with the misleading of God's enemies by God. I mean, I'm not going to go around and be like, well, so Mike thinks it's okay to lie for Jeebus. Like I'm, I'm quoting atheists here. They like saying Jeebus as a way of insulting, passive aggressively insulting Christians all the time. Um, but uh, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Um, but I think God has the ability to judgmentally declare deception over people as a punishment for their sins. And that's different than me just choosing to lie to you to control your life. It's God's judgment in the form of deception coming upon someone. Now, there's another response to this, another interpretation for 1 Kings 22, which is this, this idea. Um, in Job, we have the gathering into, into God's presence of a being like Satan, who then has a conversation with God about Job and so this implies that it may be that there are evil spirits that are also present in this courtroom that Micaiah talks about in this, in this gathering of God. So he gathers these spirits together and he's like, who will go out and lie? And so perhaps the spirit that says, I'll go, put, uh, I'll go lie to these false prophets is actually an evil spirit 
who thinks that the lying is something I want to do anyways. I'm looking to mess with Israel. I want to destroy Israel. And God looks at those prophets being false and says, you will have no protection from me against lying spirits. Go ahead and do it. Now, this, again, is a judgment thing that's happening here, but it, it creates a new context for the agent that's doing it. This is not a good spirit. It's rather just a spirit. And so here, the the, the false prophets are getting uh, false messages from false messengers. Um, and the reason why they're allowed to do it is because God's, kind of like with Job, God's hedge of protection over Israel is lowered at the time because of the wickedness of the people. I hope that wasn't too complicated and confusing, but those are a couple different angles, and I'm not entirely sure which one I pick. Yeah. Jacob Webb says, hello, hope all is well. Just a quick question. How do you interpret the lying? Oh, I already read that one. Did I forget? No, no, I skipped one. Okay, so 16 and 17 got switched. Gurlette has a question. Uh, I'm a theist, but I'm not a Christian. What are some attributes of God? And how does Jesus exhibit them in specific situations in the Bible? Can you please pray that God gives me confirmation in the mind, in my mind of the deity of Jesus, or at least whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? No matter the evidence, I can't tell. I want the truth. Well, first off, Gurlette, um, we're very happy for you. And would you guys please pray for her to work through these things and be thoughtful about it and understand it. And let me say this, that um, I think that, uh, okay, what are some attributes of God? Okay, well, well, God is, this is, this is the thing about being a theist, but not a Christian is that it's not, it's not a difficult bridge in a sense, because the idea of God being the one who created all things. So he's incredibly powerful. The one who is before all things and before time, I say before, but rather he transcends. He's, he's time. He doesn't require time is that fits the description of God in the Bible. So he's timeless. He's all powerful. He's incredibly wise and creative. He has an agenda and plan for creation. Um, he's relational. I mean, you're relational. I'm relational. Girl, that like, in fact, relations are super important to us. They're not just incidental. They're, they're essential. And God himself is relational. So th those, those are some qualities of God that we see just looking at creation. God's goodness too. Like you have a sense of moral right and wrong. I think that that's because there's real moral right and wrong because God is truly moral and good. And so we have that sense. Um, but, uh, but how does Jesus exhibit them in specific situations in the Bible? Um, well, you know, you can read about Jesus doing various miracles and those are seen as like probably the most obvious way he's demonstrating these sort of attributes of power. There's times where he even has omniscience where he knows things that he couldn't otherwise have known. But what Jesus exhibits the most in the Bible is, is the love of God and his compassion for us individually. He, he comes and he lives this perfect life amongst the sinners, amongst the, the fallen, and he does the right things, and he does the perfect things, and he preaches the truth. And then he goes to the cross and he dies, not just to like be a model of sacrifice, but, but to actually be the one who suffers for what we've done, to stand in my place and represent me and you on the cross so that there could be justice and forgiveness in the universe together as we come to, to God through Christ. Jesus is God's way of saying, I want to know you and I will make the way for that to happen, even though you failed. And so we see God's love in Christ and God's holiness in Christ in a vivid, vivid way. But when you ask about the, the, the resurrection in Christ of Christ and the deity of Christ, um, I, I'm going to recommend, and please, mods, put in the comments my playlist on the resurrection of Christ. I have a playlist of videos on YouTube or on my... Um, I think I have it also on BibleThinker.org, of uh, videos on the resurrection of Christ, offering evidence for the resurrection of Christ. I really recommend you check that out. The, the, uh, the deity of Christ is a separate issue, and it's one that I think 
the resurrection of Christ weighs in on. Because Jesus made these statements, and from the earliest moments of the church, you know, this is a bigger study on the doctrine of, of who Jesus is. We have in the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, as well as the New Testament consistently, we have this idea of the deity of Christ, his true humanity, but also true deity. Now that teaching, I think you should swallow if you believe the resurrection of Jesus, because it kind of proves all the claims about him are true. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I hope that some of that helps, Gurlet. Please check out the playlist of the resurrect on the resurrection of Christ. I think that the there is a large amount of good, solid evidence, even two thousand years later, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I really hope you'll consider it. Sproushow, Sprow, Sproushow says, Hi, Pastor Mike. My wife and I recently left the International Christian Church, ICC. Do you know about this group and what advice would you give us moving forward? Um, man, I know I've heard of them, but I can't remember right now what their views are, so I apologize for that. But let me operate, let me answer your question operating from this, this perspective, that you left a church that has um, wrong teachings on really important issues, but they're really good at driving those teachings into people's minds and indoctrinating them. And so um, one of the things that I'd recommend if you've come out of a group like that is reading the Bible without without any assumptions as much as possible. You just read the Bible without assumptions. When you do that and you read it straight through, not just verses, because all these groups, they always take verses out of context. So you read the whole book of Matthew. You read the whole book of Philippians. You read it, you know, all of it in detail. And, you know, the Bible has a way of, of undoing and sort of like cleansing us of some of those wrong beliefs as we just read it in context. That's one of the things that can happen. Um, I also recommend a lot of patience because you can easily carry some wrong beliefs with you out of a bad group for years and years to come. I also recommend um, watching out for, I don't know what to call it, PTSD, um, which is where I'm so traumatized as I keep reliving the experience of what, how I've been misled and manipulated that I just want to go into a cocoon and I will never allow anyone to do that to me again. And so we see this like in relationships, for instance, there, there's a, like say a person who was abused by a loved one and they decide I will just never have a relationship again. I'm, I'm never getting close with anybody ever again because that will protect me. And the thing is, they are cutting off future good relationships and bad ones as a way to protect. And many people, when they leave a, a cult group or a, a really problematic group like that, to protect themselves, they become their, they, I will form my own religion and I will be accountable to no one. And I think that that means you're cutting off good and bad. And that, that's a problem. So be patient. Let the word of God be your anchor. Let just simply trusting in Christ and, and give yourself lots of time to work through this stuff. Don't immediately look for some perfect teacher who will teach you everything perfectly. Instead, even if you think that's me, just don't, you know, let me just be a voice, but let the word of God be the authority and your best understanding of scripture be the authority. So if you hear me and you're like, I, you know, I hear him, but I, but what he said seems to disagree with that part there, then you don't go with me on that. You go with your best understanding of scripture and that'll be, that'll be the safety I think that happens there. So yeah. Um, yeah. God bless you. God help you guys as you work through it. Let's look at question 19. This is from um, Metalcaster, I think is how you would say your name. Um, how do we actually honor leaders that we find personally dishonorable? Some find President Trump dishonorable. Some find President Biden dishonorable. What does honoring them actually entail? That's a good question. Um, so let me throw a, a bit of a monkey wrench um, into this discussion. 
And it's something I think about every once in a while. I don't, I don't know exactly why. So Jesus talking um, in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 31 and 32. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Now, Herod was the king. Uh, well, not the king. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm trying to think of the timeline. When Jesus was born, Herod was the king of the Jews. Later in Jesus' life and his ministry here, there's multiple Herods, and he's not technically the king of the Jews. He's, he's a ruler of Galilee, but not technically a king anymore. They've been demoted. And anyway, Herod wants to kill you. So he's a high up political leader. He, he controls the region of Galilee, the Tetrarch. Right? And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my course. He, in other words, Jesus just straight up called Herod a fox. And it was not a compliment back then. <laughs> he wasn't foxy. Um, no, foxes are a nuisance. Foxes are a nuisance. They come and they eat your chickens and they mess things up and they dig holes in your field and the foxes are a nuisance to them. A fox is like a pest. So Jesus's words here calls Herod a fox. And, and here's where I, the reason why I bring this up is because I want to balance this out. Like I want to have respect for the leaders of the country, but I also recognize that Jesus called him a fox and it's, it's just something that balances us out a little bit, right? Okay, so as a Christian, <clears throat> um, I want to always respect the offices, even if I have a hard time respecting the people in the offices in, that are inhabiting that office. So the point at which, in which we have crossed the threshold, in my opinion, in our country, we no longer respect the offices of our country very well, right? All of the above. In an effort to tear down the opposition, we have torn down the very integrity of the office itself, this is in our political fights in our country. The office itself has been has been damaged and torn down. And, and everybody just takes turns, right? Because when a, when a Democrat's in office, the Republicans do it. When the Republicans in office, the Democrats do it. And, and overall, the respect for the positions themselves has dropped dramatically. And that's something I'm deeply concerned about, and I don't want to go down that road. But I also want to still have the ability to call out problems as I see them. And so... I want to be able to call out and, and forgive me guys. I'm going to, I'm going to share openly some things here that might offend people. Okay. I, I do think these things are very true. I think they I think they seem to be demonstrably true is that, uh, Donald Trump is, 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 and was a real scoundrel and, and a, and a bad person. And in, in all my years, you know, voting up until Trump showed up, I was always told by my spiritual leaders that character in, in the office mattered. And all of a sudden they didn't care anymore when he was in office. And I would say about Joe Biden, that Joe Biden seems obviously totally corrupt and abuses his power in the government in order to get money. And with nepotism and all sorts of other things that are gone on. This just seems like proven true. Now, maybe I'm wrong on those things. So let's suppose that I'm wrong on both those counts. Fine. I'm just using, call it a hypothetical. Let's pretend that that's the case. It, it can't be wrong to still deal with the issues themselves of corruption and immoral behavior, that can't be wrong. But then at some point I put the brakes on and I go, but still I will salute the president and I will follow the orders that are coming from the office because that's what I'm supposed to do. So that you have somebody like Jesus or like John the Baptist who know exactly where the limit of respecting a leader goes. And maybe that's what we're looking at with Jesus. He goes, tell that fox. He's telling, you know, oh, Herod wants to kill me. He's going to stop me on my mission from God. No, that's not going to happen. I'm going to do what I'm going to do for the Lord. But if Herod raised the taxes, Jesus would pay the taxes. 
And so there's like, there's a limit to governmental authority and they seem to be respecting those things. So John the Baptist, I brought up because he's an example of this. John the Baptist, he, he preached righteousness and he openly preached against Herod because Herod had married his brother's wife. She left her husband and then they got married and it was wrong and it was immoral. And he openly preached against the immorality of somebody in a public office. He didn't even talk about Herod's politics, but he openly preached against the sexual immorality of someone in public office. And um, this ended up getting him killed. That's why John the Baptist got his head cut off. So I think that as a Christian, I, I should respect the office. But when I want to deal with open wickedness that is going on from those who are in the office, I should do that. And the only thing I'll add is, I'd like it if people could do this without falling into the trench of party lines where they um, are only critical of people in the other trench, right? I'm only critical of, this is why I use Trump and Biden as examples of this because they're both examples of, of corruption and immoral behaviors. They are, morally speaking, uh, I think, I believe. And, um, and what I see is people who only do it to one or the other. And that seems to be a, a different issue altogether. Um, so yeah, um, I respect the office. I would, I would, you know, honor, honor the, the commands that they have given, pay the taxes, but when they are modeling immoral and ungodly behavior, I, I want to openly come against that. Yeah. Truth Seeker says, if Jesus can show himself to Paul, why can't he show himself to everyone? Um, this is our last question for today. And I, I think the answer is he can. He can't. But what's behind the question is, I have to guess at what's behind the question because it's such a short question. Because if Jesus can show himself to Paul, why can't he show himself to everyone? Oh, he could. All right. See you guys next week. <laughs> like, that's, like that's the whole question. But obviously you're implying something. There's something implied. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess, I'm going to hazard a guess at what you might be putting behind the question, which is um, if Jesus was to show himself to everyone the way he did to Paul, then a lot more people would be saved. And people who haven't, this is probably the most important part, people who haven't had Jesus show himself to them the way he did with Paul, they have some, perhaps some legitimacy to their unbelief. And in that, I'm going to back up and say, I believe the Bible when it says that, um, that, that the knowledge of God is obvious to mankind and it is our calloused hearts and minds that have us rejecting the existence of God and that when the gospel goes out, when the message of Christ goes out, the Holy Spirit is working as well. And then people do and don't respond freely, but this is not simply a lack of evidence going on. There's other issues going on in a person's heart and life. And um, um, is I could I theorize, what if so-and-so would get saved if Jesus would only appear to them? I'm like, well, would they really get saved? Like, do we know they would get saved and follow Christ or would they only increase in their condemnation? Or would it be a type of quality of relationship that is something that God's not going after? Um, because it's he's imposing himself on others instead of reaching them with the gospel. So I am very, very hesitant to walk down these roads because they feel very impious in the genuine sense of the word. Jesus, why don't you show yourself to more people? The the I'm just going to be straight with you guys and a lot of people aren't going to like this. Um, there's a sense of entitlement and human human requirements on God that 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 question starts out with that I feel are very unhealthy and they are the makings of rebellion in general against God. God, unbelief is your fault. That's the bottom line. You don't you don't do enough things to fix our unbelief. We are now the victims 
of God not doing enough to save us. I mean, definitely the Bible doesn't present it that way. If Christianity is true, then that's not true. <laughs> um, that, that also ignores the work of the Holy Spirit. It ignores the power of the gospel of Christ. It, it ignores the awareness of God that people have and the conscience that tells them about their sin. And it ignores a lot of those things. And so I'm going to suggest um, that, that that's a mistake. Let's suppose that when we do die, we stand before God and he shows us all the times he tried to reach us that we didn't listen to. And then we, when we say, but you didn't, you didn't have Jesus physically appear to me. We realize we were saying that while ignoring all these other things that God has done to reach, to reach us, to impact us. Those every moment when that happened with God in our lives. And, and that's what I want to encourage people to do is respond to what God has done and not complain about what he didn't do. Um, so yeah, I think truth seeker, what, what you're touching on, and maybe you're just sharing somebody else's question, you know, I don't know. No judgment on you, but what you're touching on is a really important issue that turns the question of Jesus into a question of entitlement, human entitlement and expectations on God. And now I'm not, it's not God looking at me saying, you're not good enough, but I've made a way. It's us looking at God going, you're not good enough. And any belief that ends with you shaking your fist at heaven as though you're the victim of this God who has offended you is layers of delusion that have to be overcome. I told you I'd offend somebody. <laughs> so I don't mean to. Love you guys. I want you to know the truth of Christ. And this kind of like hidden senses of entitlement um, will turn us into God haters. Where you're like, well, even if he does exist, I despise him for it. And there's like, there can be no wisdom. There can be no wisdom or knowledge or understanding in the heart of a person who says, God, even if the gospel's true, I despise you because you didn't do this thing that I think you should have done. Um, it's like it's like when you were a teenager and you were convinced your parents hated you because they wouldn't let you wear that thing or go to that party. You really were convinced. You hate me. Why do you hate me? And you were just being stupid. And humans can be this way now. We have to guard ourselves from this attitude towards God. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that this helps you in some measure, in some way. You guys, just by way of announcement, I will not be with you Monday. Um, I may upload a video Monday, uh, but not, not a live stream. So the next Women in Ministry study isn't going to be till the following Monday, which, in case you're not watching this today, is Monday the 28th. That'll be the next Women in Ministry study. We're going to be going surveying through the entire Old Testament, looking at women who are in high positions to see what we can learn from them and in considering why weren't women Levitical priests. Why was this not there? There's various theories about it, and we'll work through that stuff and see what we can learn. Thank you guys very much for joining. Lord bless you and keep you. And may you know the goodness of God as you ask all these questions about the Bible, questions about Christ, questions about, about salvation and God's, God's actions with man. May you know above all else the goodness of God and the salvation there is in Christ. And may that, I just pray that would be the bedrock for you and that the other stuff is things you care about, but this is the thing you live in.